Yaran, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of our Pacific Talks, where I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about the challenges our world is facing and seeing them through a Pacific lens. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Robert Oliver. Robert is a famous chef from New Zealand, uh, and he spent his youth in Fiji and Samoa, probably where he got his passion for local ingredients, but he'll probably tell us more about it later. Uh, Robert hosted the TV series Real Pacific, which played in more than 40 countries and is on its uh, 75th rerun, which is uh, quite a success. He's ambassador for the Cordon Bleu, uh, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands, and UNDP Pacific Advocate for Food, Sustainable Development and Wellbeing, and is also the winner of uh, several awards. And I personally have been pleased to welcome him as a speaker for TEDx Papete in 2016. And since then, uh, Robert is also the founder of Pacific Food Revolution, a show that is filled with specific heritage and humor. And I'm quoting, uses the power of reality TV, radio, and social media to change people's eating behavior. So quite a big goal, ambitious, but necessary. So Robert, welcome to Pacific Talks. Hello, great to see you, Philippe. So, Robert, a lot of people are quite familiar uh, with you and with your face through your TV shows, your books, and all the events you've been a speaker at. Uh, but sometimes we feel that we know the public individuals more than the, the private uh, ones. So, as a start, can you tell us a little bit more about your you and your career? Mm. Um, yeah, like you said, I was brought up in the Pacific, um, and I, I was raised by a father who was uh, committed to the idea that community always comes first through your thinking. The needs of the community always come before the needs of the individual. And so that collective uh, approach is fundamentally a Pacific approach. I mean, that's the way Pacific society operates. But we were brought up in that environment of, of really a fire with the idea of social quote-unquote development um, being what our life's goal is goal is, right? how you live. So I, after I lived in Fiji, I lived in New York for many years, and then I began to reflect that every cuisine had been represented in these great cities of the world, but there was no, uh, Pacific cuisine was nowhere, and I knew how great it was from the food I ate as a child, as a kid growing up. And then I was, I was uh, working in the Caribbean, actually, uh, working, connecting farmers to hotels, the Caribbean imported a lot of its food for tourism. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if you put local cuisine on the menu, that you needed local agriculture. And that was a, obviously a terrific economic opportunity for local farmers. So I really understood the value of cuisine as a, as a change, an agent of change. And, and I worked in the, on that project for some time where we, we made incredible, um, headways in getting local cuisine placed on the menus, getting local farmers involved. It required many people, not just me, but but it was an exciting time. And I thought, man, the Pacific needs this. You know, we, we many of the Pacific hotels, I mean, not so much in Tahiti, to be, to be fair, but many of the Pacific hotels have a high representation of Western food on the menu. And hence, a lot of the food is imported. And the tourists are missing out on this fabulous opportunity and experience. Many people learn and engage with each other through food. And the story of the food is the story of the people. So that's really how I began my life back in the Pacific was thinking, I've got to write a cookbook. 
because a cookbook, it's in a cookbook, people will see it, they'll look at the beautiful photos, it'll be packaged as a culture and um, celebrated. And that's that's how really my Pacific life back in the Pacific began. I never intended to stay, mm-hmm. but when when the first book, the Meikai book, of which Tahiti is a significant part, and thanks to Manuel Terre, who was at Tahiti Tourism at the time and made everything happen for me to come to Tahiti and to include Tahiti in the project, um, that book won the best cookbook in the world in the Gourmand Awards, which was, of course, shocking to me because it was my first book. <laughs> and it was because people had just internationally were exposed in a, in a new and exciting way to what the cuisine offering of the Pacific is and thus who Pacific people are through their food proposition. And I realized that there was a lot of work to do, so I stayed. Mm. And I'm sure you're still uh, discovering new things every day. New beautiful things, mm-hmm. Philippe, new beautiful things. The, the, the further you dig into it, the, the better it gets. Mm. If, if you have to describe uh, in a few words, I, I know it's probably difficult, but uh, what is so specific to Pacific cuisine compared to the rest of, of the world, what, what would you say it is? The Pacific itself. I mean, the fact that the, uh, the, the food is such a, a way of, of people sharing and building relationships and building community and the medicinal, all the knowledge that sits behind the food, the medicinal knowledge, the cultural knowledge, the memories that food evokes. And I'm talking about local food. I'm not talking about fast food. I'm not talking about food that's everywhere now. I'm talking about the stuff that grandma makes. Mm. And when I was, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Fiji, there was no processed food. So the food that we primarily ate was from the market or from the the incredible basket of Fijian food culture and Indian food culture in Fiji, of course, because they, mm. they, they got it all. <laughs> they got it all there. Um, so it's not that there's one ingredient. I could say coconut to answer that question for you, but actually it's all the dimensions of otherness and uniqueness mm. that sit behind that plate of food that make it so attractive and soulful to people. Yeah. So when I listen to you, it seems to me, and that's also something that I, I experienced myself, that what's important in the Pacific food and Pacific cuisine is the tradition. Yet your show is called Pacific Food Revolution. So can you tell us a little bit about the concept of the show and, and why sure. the name and, and what's the goal in, in, in all that? And the interesting fact that I have Her Royal Highness the princess of royal of Tonga in a revolution with me, right? Oh. <laughs> Not many royals get to do that. Um, the Pacific Island Food Revolution was when I'd been on the path of when I realized if I start doing the cookbooks and the television and get the, the and all these incredible people in the Pacific who were the leaders around food, uh, the organic farmers and the chefs and their home cooks, all the people that, that really capture the uh, cuisine proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I also became aware of all the health numbers. The Pacific has the highest rates of NCDs, diabetes, heart disease, etc., in the world, not just in the Pacific, in the world. And yet, and yet, I knew that when I was younger, they didn't. There was the, no one talked about diabetes, and that's because we weren't. Our, our eating habits were still quite natural. So I was aware that people had 
change the way they eat. And we all know that. And it's, you know, we live in a different environment. The environment is around fast food marketing and around, you know, a, the whole food environment has changed. And of course, people's eating habits have changed with it. But um, I was aware that we kind of have a bit of a mindset in the Pacific. I, I can't speak for everyone, but I always grew up with the idea that everything from overseas was better. Mm. Like we looked outwards at, and wanted to go to these places and viewed Paris and New York as the best, you know, whereas actually when you go there, you realize the best is in the Pacific mm. in, in pretty much every, in every aspect of life. And so all these things played into the, into the change in eating habits People were eating a lot more sugary drinks. That, and I was like, wow, if we can just get people eating their own food again, that's going to go a long way towards addressing the health issues. How do we do that? I already, through my work, I already knew incredible people in Vanuatu, in Fiji, in Samoa, in the Kingdom of Tonga, who if I put a group together, we could lead something profound. And I'd just been a judge on one of those big, TV shows called My Kitchen Rules. And actually, when I took the role, I was like, gee, I, this is not the kind of TV I usually do. But when I did it, everyone, it's got everyone talking, it's got everyone cooking and thinking about food and talking about food. And I was like, that's what I want to bring to the Pacific. And my team, you know, I've got a core group of people I've worked with for years um, Dr. John Ehawea in Fiji, Vitasi uh, Mackenzie Rowe in Vanuatu. Dora Rossi in Samoa, Suliana Siwatimbao in Fiji, Andy Tapinai in Samoa, the same Papilo Foliaki in Tonga, the same group of people I've always worked with. And we were all like, this is going to change the game. Because the great thing about those reality TV shows is they're full of local people. And if you, if you put local, you know, entertainment works by audience identification. So if you put someone in a show who looks like your sister, you're going to tap into that identity and feel connected and inspired by it. So we basically designed a reality cooking competition show just like MasterChef. Mm. And between Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu, Tonga, uh, where we get to cook solutions to the problems. If, for example, in Fiji, there's a high anemia rate, and yet there's all these greens in the market. Why are people not eating them? Well, because of all the reasons I mentioned before, you know, the fast food marketing and there's a deference to the Western way, which the fast food marketers have really understood and, and worked towards. So we did an episode in the show, which is about new recipes with the greens. And that way we get to kind of put new energy into um, local crops. And it's coming from the people in the show. It's not coming from me. It's coming from people from their cultural position. So it just and it's just, just taken off, and then so then we we have episodes in each country, and then the countries we have a winner from each country, and then the countries go head to head, and you know what a sports field is like in mm -hmm. the Pacific. We're doing the same in food, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just been amazing, and people love it. And what I've realised is that, and this was always my dream. We've we've together we've made something that people want to be a part of. And that's magic. That's real magic. So, and we're getting results in from our surveys that's showing people are really, it's working. People are really considering what they eat. They're getting knowledge through the show and more importantly, inspiration through their own country people 
in the show. The mm. show is, when I say the show, it's much bigger than a show. The TV leads a very broad social media campaign uh, and many other um, communication methods sit around the basic TV show. But I chose TV because TV is one of those hero products that stands out above the rest and that everyone tunes into. And so it's fun and it's fun and it's a joyous celebration of Pacific people and food it's not a usual ncd approach which is saying don't eat something don't do that mm -hmm. and no one no one does what they're told to do <laughs> that's just life yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. always easier to spread a message with fun and humor than uh through like seriousness or like kind of like condescending approach of telling people yeah. what to do and how to do it yeah absolutely so, and it's, it's caught on in many ways i mean People hadn't realized, for example, that their own food system was a solution to the NCD crisis. Mm. It had never been put forward as a whole proposition, and that was tremendously moving for many people. We've had a lot of feedback on that, just saying, I just hadn't thought of it that way. And that's, that's awesome. Mm. So would you say that the, the revolution that is in, in the name of your show is a revolution that leads back to the traditions? Or that a revolution that says, let's use the wisdom of the past to tackle the challenge of today and tomorrow. And, and what approach do you think you, you're heading to? You know, I, I saw the movie Whale Rider and written mm -hmm. by the great New Zealand writer, Witi Ihimeira. And one line stood out to me, and that is, tradition must evolve to remain relevant. So we're not, we're, we're working off the traditional food base and the traditional dishes we're bringing new energy in to contemporize it and also young people we found in our earlier research often shy away from the word tradition because they think it means it's dated belongs to the past belongs to a generation or two above them and they don't feel a place in it so we were anxious to make a place for young people to appreciate tradition and it, 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 you know they do once they're exposed to it in a way that they get to participate in its evolution. Mm, yeah. So I, I wanted to go back to these uh, issues of the NCDs. There is uh, quite a, a big crisis in the, in the Pacific. What are for you the core um, causes or the root of the problem? Because obviously you need to get people uh, back to eating a food that is more adapted to the environment and, and, and their culture and traditions. But do you think there are other causes that are uh, at the root of this NCD uh, problem? Well, I, like, I guess I'd go back to what I mentioned before around the environment changing. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the natural environment. I mean the narrative environment, all the marketing of fast foods. The fact that um, traditional food is often seen as Uh, labor-intensive, takes a long time. But actually, you look at all the crops and you could do something very quick with all of them. Um, so just a slight, uh, you know, NCDs are a result of a food culture that's just a little bit off its, off its own tracks, but, it's, but it can be put back onto its tra tracks quite easily. And if you look at the great, what we would consider to be the great cuisines of the world, like Thai cuisine or French cuisine, or they keep, changing and moving mm. and being reinvented and there's a lot of energy from the people sitting behind them and so that's the dynamic that we we wanted to that is the revolution dynamic and that is led by people mm. 
And in, in this revolution, do you think like chef like you, even if it may not be uh, a traditional way of approaching cuisine, which is usually more communal, more traditional, but having like this uh, new approach of restoration of chef or like TV shows, do you think that's a, a way to kind of like in, like connect the two different cultures with like the traditional ingredients and yet the modern way of bringing food or, or, or getting people interested in food? Yes. I mean, that's the idea behind the design that we have now. And, mm. and I, can, I can tell you that it's working. We, we're seeing it in our, in our monitoring evaluation results. We're funded by the New Zealand and Australian government, so we, which I'm very grateful for. It, it's a real sign of their commitment to the well-being of Pacific people, their genuine commitment, um, not just diplomacy, but really doing something, you know. And the, the bit that's exciting to us is we are seeing the numbers bringing that in. And it's not about tradition being dated. It's, it's that's just where you start. That's the whole mm. foundation of where you begin. And the tradition, remember, is based on the natural world. Of course. Yeah. Indeed. So in the, in the way we educate people, as you said, you through your show, you, there's a goal to educate and using fun and TV, which is like a very popular medium. Uh, but you also see a lot of campaigns from NGOs, from health departments, uh, trying to use maybe a, a, another type of approach to educate people and say, oh, you need to change your diet, you need to exercise more, you need, and, and all those may not fit exactly the way of life of the Pacific. So to your expertise in the problem, how do you think that educating people should integrate more elements of the traditional uh, and, and the more ad like environmentally adapted way of living of the Pacific people? Well, I don't think a solely nutritional approach helps. That mm. that is giving people science, and they've got to understand that. And that's that's the field of nutritionists, you know. I just think that, um, or I mean, there have been lots of campaigns by many agencies for many many years, and based on good intention and good knowledge, but they they don't seem to have grabbed. So so much development quote unquote i use that word because i often find it's actually the developers that need de developing not not pacific people. i mean pacific <laughs> cuisine has developed i'm just mm. all we're doing is is saying hey look at this stuff this is what's going to help us i mean that's exciting to us is that pacific cuisine is a pacific solution to a pacific problem mm. i don't they don't need consultants like me to come and do that i'm just i'm just putting the framework in that's all to expose it but um I I also think that many development approaches um, often come in with really good ideas and and looking for very good outcomes, but they don't. Um, and this is a very sweeping generalization because many of them do do this as well. They don't understand what people really want, what really turns them on, what will really grab them, what will get them excited about this prospect, whatever they're proposing. And that's why we chose entertainment and that's why we chose TV because mm. TV does that. It mm. gets people all fired up and it gets people watching it as families. And so that's why the entertainment opportunity is, to me, a great opportunity. And all of the, the other campaigns, by the way, I would never speak negatively of them. Uh, you know, I, I would love to work with them, actually, because we're all on the same path in a different way. 
Um, but I, I can say, I can honestly say that our campaign is having an effect. Mm. And so mm. if I could summarize the role that you're playing is to say, to be kind of like a canary in the coal mine saying to people, hey, by the way, how about we talk about this problem and, and how we can find solutions together instead of coming and say, this is how you should do things. Well, it would be great if there was just one or two campaigns rather than a hundred. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even from an economic perspective, it doesn't make mm. sense. And we're, we're, we, when we have worked with the ministries in the region, it's been tremendously successful and, we're, and we, we want to work with everybody. Mm. Yeah. Yarana, I'm Philippe, the host of the Pacific Talks and also the founder of Pacific Venture. If you like this podcast, you may be interested to discover our weekly newsletter, The Global Tiller. In a five minutes reading, we give you a new and fresh perspective on global trends and issues. From the Pacific to South Asia, discover our analysis of global challenges done from a point of view that is not one of the major centers of influence. A good way to change your approach to major topics. If you're looking for a different way to understand the news, subscribe for free at The Global Tiller. Find out more on theglobaltiller.substack.com or on pacificventry.com slash newsletters. Hope to see you there. So in a recent interview with the International Fund for Agricultural Development, uh, you said, uh, and I quote, the inherent generosity of nature there is unmatched. Food, food is everywhere, natural, nutritious. Staying on the natural path and valuing what the creator has given is key to health and well-being in the Pacific. So that summarizes what we just uh, talked about. Um, beyond the immediate issue of NCDs, How do you think we can encourage a locally based economy that can help local diets, local food, local ingredients to be more widely spread, more widely attractive to customers and get into this? Because it's here now, we have to deal with it, the economic system as it is. Uh, how can we match those yeah. two? I just want to address the, first of all, I don't remember that interview at all. So, <laughs> but I, I, I do like. I did my I research. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I just want us to reflect for a moment, Philippe, and, and everyone to reflect. Everyone in the Pacific, we, we live in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. It's not a concept for us. Where else do we have such generosity of nature, of, of oceans, of society, of land? Where do we have organics naturally occurring, throwing themselves at us to eat? We, we are truly, truly blessed. And I'm not a religious person, but if I, my God concept sits around the generosity of the natural design, the divine the design that has been given as a gift to Pacific people. So to me, there's a, there's a spiritual element uh, that comes along with eating well and sitting within that natural space as opposed to the chemical space or the process space, we've actually been given it. We, we don't have to work hard mm. to be there. So what, what, what blessed people the Pacific people are, let alone the knowledge of how to use it, which is what the, the grandmothers and the 
food culture and the culture itself provides. So let us not forget, we start off, we may have this big problem, but we have this massive asset sitting in our day-to-day lives that we probably take for granted and we may not see it in such a grand term, but I certainly do. All of my work and the and the intertwining of the, the notion of food and and universal good and faith sit within my being through all my work and all of my partners in the Pacific are exactly the same. We all we talk about this a lot. Mm. Um, but I also want to reflect on what is food? What is a plate of food? It's much more than what's on the plate. It goes into the all of the society positions of of culture and identity and pride and memories. But on the other side of it, you could look at that same place and look at the development agendas, climate change. There's a big relationship between climate change and food. If we choose to eat local food, we're choosing to eat food that grows locally and has a positive effect on the on the environment. That's a political act. And that's what everyone in the Pacific can be doing. These, these, this is a revolutionary thinking. You see what I'm saying? You look at ec- economic development. If we promote the cuisine through the tourism machine, it flows into local farmers and their supplies, into women's groups making, I'm just making this up, but, you know, into women's groups making value-added products, you know, the chutneys and the, that can go on the tourism menus and then go back home with the tourist. I can list a big list of development agendas that if you base them on the plate of local food, you bring the two together, the joy from the society and the inspiration from the society with the development goal. Mm-hmm. So there's not one answer for that. It's just a broad view. Yeah. So if I hear you correctly, uh, in order for local food, for example, to get into hotels, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that they don't do most of them for now, or if we want those local foods to get into school canteens and, and all those like big uh, institution that requires a lot of products and stuff. Uh, does it require like a political will uh, to make those products everything. more attractive? It requires everything, and it requires a long-term view. When I was, um, you know, a lot of you go to a hotel and say, "Why didn't you buy from local farmers?" Or they say, "Well, they don't have what I need," and and they didn't show up or something. Well, that involves a, that needs a strategy with a ten or twenty-year view uh, between the various ministries. Uh, policy, um, community organization, uh, processes need to be developed. But it requires politicians who view beyond their own political season. And I can tell you something, Vanuatu is about to lead us all on this Mm -hmm. because Vanuatu has taken the COVID pause in tourism to say, what is, is our tourism really working for us? And they are redesigning a tourism model that does put food and people and the benefits front and center of their tourism uh, whole machine. And I know this because Vitasi Mackenzie Rowe, who is my co-host in Vanuatu on Pacific Island Food Revolution, is leading exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very yeah. good news. And that's yeah. very relevant to every island here also. Very really. relevant. Yeah. yeah. And I think many islands have tried. I know Fiji's tried for years, but it does require a very strategic long view to mm. work indeed all mm. right um i want to take a bigger uh bigger view here and, and and go into more global issues as you said food and climate change are uh, highly related to each other we know how much uh 
the meat industry, for example, is impacting a lot uh, greenhouse gases emissions. Um, so recently, I don't know if you read his book, uh, but Bill Gates wrote a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And he suggested that to help reduce drastically uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, one solution could be to completely give up on meat production. And he also suggested that lab-grown meat, or either out of plant uh, or out of meat cells, could help on this. So I want to know what's your view uh, on this new development around the meat industry, the future of the meat industry, and the new alternatives that are coming. Uh, and also, did you test already this new meat? No, I haven't actually, and I've passed it in the supermarket a few times, and I've found that I've I'm a I've always loved meat. I've always loved meat. I've always been a carnivore, and I've been brought up on meat, and I've related to meat as being fundamental to it, you know the center of the plate, you know. Um, but I found that um, I'm barely eating meat, and it's been a slow thing for me. I, I I never eat meat at home. I will occasionally eat meat if I go out. I have been affected by the, cl the climate change data that you've mentioned. I, I want to make one note to that, that, that there is also, there's a whole field of uh, thought about farming well, farming correctly. Mm. And I look at um, what Bill Nyman is doing in California, for example, around farming in a way that is productive for the environment. So it is possible to do that, but the economists keep saying that that's not possible and, and That's only because it hasn't been scaled up. That's the only reason that it's not hasn't been taken on as a global mm. model. But you, then you look at um, the mass, the what do they call it? The massive livestock facilities mm. in the United States, which just destroy the environment, and also all you know, we all know all the the agricultural ramifications of that, and that's where the climate change bit comes in. But I found because I've been exposed to so much climate change and meat data, I also have been exposed to realizing that it's not good to eat too much meat from a nutritional perspective. And traditionally, it's come up for me a lot through Pacific Iron Food Revolution, that Pacific people never did eat a lot of meat. Even though it was had high status, it was still low quantity. And the other thing was around cruelty. I don't personally want to be part of a killing cycle. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't kill an animal because I love animals. And so why am I eating them? And I've got to understand that consciousness when I do eat. I often ignore it, which because I love meat. But I would say to your question, I don't think that people should be told that they've got to stop eating meat. I think people should take this knowledge in and as they will and do what they can and, and do it realistically. If it's just cutting down a bit, if it's something, but a raise in consciousness requires a response in our individual lives. And it may not be the absolute purity, mm -hmm. but it, but it'll still get us there. Yeah. And if, and if, if you, you know, it's like dieting, the dieting concept, people don't do it because it's horrible. Right. <laughs> and so, and so make it, make it attractive. And if that just means cutting down or just developing consciousness, that's enough. Mm. So that, It's actually something that I did a few years ago where I stopped and, and, and reflected on my own way of eating. Uh, and, and I kind of tried to, you know, different options, different alternatives. I asked my chef, myself, should I become vegan or should I stop completely meat? or should? I? And I eventually realized like, okay, I'm going to at least start making sure that I buy good 
ingredients and that mm. I don't overeat and that I, I know like where my products are, are coming from. So you think that if at least everyone was more intentional in the way they eat, mm. at least if they have the ability to be that intentional and to access uh, good food, because it's obviously there's an economical cost to it, you think that yeah. uh, that would help a lot in, in tackling uh, climate change through the food uh, uh, question? Absolutely. And it's all back to our intention to evolve as as human beings, isn't it? I mean, if we take in things that we know to be true and don't respond to them in our lives, we are the ones who suffer. Mm. Mm. And do you think another option also in order to envision this problem that is affecting everyone globally would be to say maybe the uniformization that we all experienced since the couple of last decades where everyone wants to eat meat, uh, everyone wants to have fast food, everyone wants to very much have the same food everywhere, uh, maybe also the cause of this heavily industrialized food industry and maybe going back to localized food habits or food traditions mm. could also help to tackle uh, this issue. Absolutely. And also try to, I guess, try to understand the difference between truth and marketing. Because marketing will always tell you it's truth, but really most of us know better. And and I just want to say that the, the COVID uh, experience has had a silver lining in the Pacific for sure. I look at Fiji and people are back in the backyard. It's not, there's many crops. You don't need to be a farmer or a gardener to grow. The, it's just that little layer of consciousness has kicked in. And they're like, actually, we can do this. We can we can look after ourselves a little better, and it's not hard. And all the, there's many many wins around the process around less food imports, better nutrition, less reliance on a on on some international actor in terms of supply. So, yeah, I think increments is good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all about being maybe more flexible than trying to have everything. At the same level for everyone, uh, but which yeah. could also require not- for pe- for people to accept that they may not be able to eat the same food as in New York, for example. But it it's not bad per se. Well, I mean, this goes back to a thing around the role of chefs. Eh? I mean, one with Pacific Island Food Revolution, we're we're always we're happy to have a couple of chefs in the show, but it's not a chef show. This is a food culture show, and it's driven. We've got many of our contestants who are in the show from the different countries, we make sure there are not too many chefs. It's good to have some because they drive the passion and the creativity and they want to win and all that kind of stuff. But culture begins at home and begins in the history and usually in in what grandma made. Mm. So we should make more TV shows about grandma's recipes then. You know, there was one... Challenge that I gave the contestants, and I, I I don't remember what it was, but I was explaining what they were going to cook, mm. and they they a couple of them went for their phones to like Google it, and I said, don't don't ask Google, ask Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, all right. So one tr- tradition of the Pacific Talks uh, is uh, around the the end of the interview to come up with a quote from another person, another thinker, and and to expose it to my guests and to kind of like have ideas collide together and see what what comes out. So for you, I chose today a, a quote from the Optimist Telescope, which is a book written by an academic called Bina uh, Venkataraman, who writes this: 
While it took 10,000 years from the dawn of civilization to the invention of the airplane, it took less than seven decades from the first airplane flights in Earth's atmosphere to the moon landing. In a matter of decades, the world as people know it today will seem distant to us. So knowing how humanity has indeed changed exponentially along the generations, what do you think will be the future of our food in 20 and 30 years from now? You know, the first thought I had when I hear that is how fragile traditional knowledge actually is. It can be lost in, in one or two generations, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a treasure that we, we mustn't lose. We mustn't lose in the rush to be something else. Um, and and that's, that, that's probably my main thought from that. I, I, I just would very much not like to see a future food that is disconnected from the cultural base and the natural base that, that as I said, I believe was given to us by God. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I had the opportunity sometimes to do workshops on future and I uh, usually take food uh, because it's something that people can easily imagine. And I ask people, what do you think we will have for dinner in 20 years? And every now and then people come saying like, oh, we'll eat through peels or IVs or all those things that I think reveal some kind of fear of what's going to happen in the future. So as you are a chef, you know food and you know uh, even more than uh, a lot of people, local ingredients and, and traditional cuisine. How, what could be your recommendation for all of us to make sure that we preserve our health and our well-being in the future, knowing how the world is going with climate change, with all those uh, issues that we're facing right now? Mm. This is the goal of Pacific Island Food Revolution, is to, to re-energize our memories. Uh, remember who, how profound these cultures are. And yes, we will evolve them and catalyze them, but we'll always use them as inspiration moving forward. And, and you can't get more advanced than knowing who you are. That's, that's, that, that's where, <laughs> that's, and I'm speaking on a societal level as well. Mm. You know, we don't need to be all Western. You know, that we are Western. Of course, we've taken in the Western attributes that are suitable to us, but we don't have to, we don't have to forget anyone in any culture, forget who they are in the process. Mm. And maybe try to take the, both, uh, the best of both worlds as much as that, possible. I, I think the Pacific does a pretty good job of that a lot of the time, by the way. Yeah. I, does do. a really good, I mean, I see the leadership in the Pacific as being profound. Mm. profound it's not often in the packages that people are used to perceiving as leadership that are used to, they used to leadership being associated to power mm. and often to one person and i i certainly don't see leadership that way and i and i witness leadership being a community uh that's often articulated or activated by one person but the consensus is what's, what excites me. And even with Pacific Island Food Revolution, sure, it may have been my innovation that I bought, but I wouldn't have bought it if, if my group didn't think it was the right one. And it was it, if, it, if it wasn't right for their countries and, and, and for their knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm always concerned about getting, getting confused with some of the endless development consultants we see traipsing through the Pacific <laughs> who, who you know, often mean really well but, um, but don't have that deep understanding of people to, mm. to add to the mix. Yeah. 
Indeed. Mm. So my last question for you, Robert, will be about that and, and the future that we're all facing with all those issues. Um, if anyone listening to this podcast is actually thinking of getting engaged, starting something, whether a business, an NGO, or whatever community project, who's trying to get into the the shoes of a leader and say, I want to change something in the world, uh, but that can feel helpless looking at all the problems that we are facing. What would be your recommendation or your advice for this person and, and to help her or him uh, really like step up and, and get into action? I mean, the, the, the ease with which you can create and communicate a message through social media is unbelievable. We, that, that's really only in the last 15 years we've had that opportunity. And so that's where to begin is the dialogue, the narrative. Get And really, I think it's really important to investigate within yourself, what is my motivation for doing this? Um, who is it going to affect and, and how deeply have I consulted with them? And, and how deeply are they actually driving the process? Um, but also, um, people often, you know, people see me, they see me as a person on TV and that but that's just the shiny bit that that hangs at the end of years of work and fundraising and development and developing relationships and understanding deeply understanding what's going to work so don't expect instant results but because that that they they don't tend to hold you know they they don't they they're not supported by the deep uh, connectivity that that doing the work really creates and then the other one very obvious thing I would say is that make sure it's something that you really love mm. because if you really love it, you'll do it really well and you'll stay with it. That <laughs> <laughs> no, is true. And probably make sure that you bring food on the table because that's the best way to get people together. Always. always. <laughs> it's always worked for me, Philippe. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I'm sure your table is always one of the best to go to. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, great. Right. I must come back to Tahiti at some point because the food that I had there was just unbelievable. I, I often salivate thinking about it. <laughs> we do have yeah. a good gastronomy that takes the best of, uh, of different cultures and, and that's Absolutely. always a good experience. Absolutely. All right. Well, Robert, thank you very much for giving us uh, some you. time for this conversation and sharing your knowledge and, uh, and your motivation to lead the, the food revolution in the Pacific that is uh, much needed and I'm sure will influence the rest of the world. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luke. Great to see you. Good to see you too. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.